0: All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Second Samuel. We're going to be doing all of chapter 7. I know much like the, what was read for us today, that sounds arduous, but it's not nearly as arduous as it sounds. Um, yeah, we were going to do this in two, two portions, but actually Tyler Hatcher is going to be here preaching next week uh, for me. I'm going to be gone a couple of days with Ann. Uh, to celebrate our anniversary early, so he'll be here next week. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just lump it all together in one sermon. So what we're going to talk about today is um, the transaction between David and Yahweh, um, where where the Lord gives David a title deed to a house. Um, And it's a wonderful section. It it gave root uh, to the name of one of my favorite theological books, A House for My Name, which is a commentary by Peter Lightheart on the Old Testament. It's excellent if you haven't read it, A House for My Name. Uh, That is what the section is about. The Lord is going to build a house for his name. Before we consider the text, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us, your long uh, faithfulness and loving kindness that you have not only shown us, uh, shown our children, but have shown our fathers, Lord. Your love has a long track record. Your faithfulness, Lord, to us has been steady and has been apparent going back to Genesis. We pray, Lord, that as we take up the story of David now and your greater story for all of humankind, we would not only see the great things that you have done for us, but that we would see our place in it. We pray, Lord, that we would receive from you this same deed, Lord, to a house of eternal rest. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, our rest the Lord Jesus, our eternity, the Lord Jesus, indeed, our home. We thank you and praise you in his name, and amen. Now, there are a few key details um, right out of the gate when you open to 2 Samuel 7 that uh, tell us, that that impress upon us exactly what's going on. There's just a few details that explain the whole thing. Now, after David has uh, his furious actions, in the preceding chapters, we see him dancing and leaping and fighting and building. All this action, right? It's like the, the book of Mark. It's just David is out there doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. After all of that, the pace of the story slows to a crawl through chapter 7. And what it has is two short speeches followed by two long speeches. David says to Nathan, I will build Yahweh a house. Nathan says to David, go and do it. <laughs> Very straightforward. Very straightforward. Yahweh then comes to Nathan and says, no, David will not build me a house. I will build him a house. And then David sits down, and to Yahweh, he gives him a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. That's, that's what this chapter contains, these four speeches. Second Samuel 7 contains the Lord's longest speech since his proclamation of the Mosaic Covenant in Mount Sinai. That is the detail that tells us what's going on. It's 197 words in Hebrew. It's the longest recorded speech by God since Mount Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy. So if if, if the Lord is suddenly going to appear and say this much, what he is saying and why he is saying it is very important. And it connects what is happening here with David to what happened on Mount Sinai when he made a covenant with Moses. It's a transition in Israel's history specifically to Israel's covenant relationship. With the Lord God, the divine word to Nathan repeats these terms: rest, make a great name, house, servant, Lord. And and what it is doing is it's extending the promises that God made to Abraham to David. David is now being taken up not just uh, in, in the story along you know relating to Saul and the kings of Israel, but he's being taken up into the greater story involving Abraham himself and Moses. But two new interlocking themes emerge as the Lord speaks. Yahweh is is giving David a title deed to an an eternal house by promising that David's line will rule forever and that Yahweh will not remove his steadfast love, his yesed, from David or his children like he had from Saul. He says this, it's permanent. You're going to rule forever, and I am going to rule you forever. You are mine, and I am yours forever. And you will rule not only this people, but this world forever. Now, think of such a thing. Think of the Lord God sitting in your living room telling you that you are going to rule forever. That is what's happening here. It's it's just like when the Lord took Abraham outside and said, Now, look up at the stars and count them. (laughs) Come on, I don't have a calculator. I don't have an abacus that big, God. And Abraham is humbled by what God tells him. That's what's happening here. Instead of count the stars, it's you will be established for eternity. Through David, Yahweh will build an eternal household, a dynasty, a house of loving kindness, a house of rest. Through David, Yahweh is going to do it. He's going to build a dynasty. Now, the word covenant does not appear anywhere in 2 Samuel 7. This uh, isn't nearly as important as we think it is, right? This is sort of like what happens with Adam in the very beginning in Genesis. People say, well, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't see the word covenant. This isn't a covenant. Um, and similarly here, no, there's no word covenant. So the question is, is it a covenant that he's making if the word covenant does not appear? Uh, no, that's not what it means. Because scripture interprets scripture. Now, we're not going to get into the structure of how a covenant is made. Covenant theology is very important. Uh, the leadership of the church has realized how much we need to talk about it. I'm going to be doing a, a series in the summer on covenant theology. Jared's going to be teaching a class on covenant theology. Two thumbs up, brother. We're going to talk a lot, a lot about it. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you see God's relationship to Adam, you see it here. There is a covenant structure to, what, to how is, he says what he says. But we're not going to look at that. We're not going to look at that right now because we're jumping the gun. <laughs> and, and it takes like three sermons to explain it. What I want to do is simply go to another portion of Scripture where there's commentary on what happens here. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, we, we don't have to figure it out by finding this word covenant. We let Scripture tell us what occurred. And in Psalm 89, verse 3, it says this. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Now, when did that happen? It happened right here in 2 Samuel, chapter 7. God made a covenant with David. It says in Psalm eighty-nine thirty-four, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Second Samuel 23, 5, this is David himself. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will, not, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So David and God refer to what their relationship as a covenant. Okay? That's all we need to know. Amen? Move on. Right? That, that, that argument amongst the scholars is over at that point. Covenant theology is key to understanding the Bible. It's a framework for understanding the whole Bible. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we're told something very important. The Gentiles need to realize the story that they've been taken up into, the people they've been taken up into. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when we were estranged from God, we were outside the commonwealth of Israel, and we were outside of the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. This is crucial to understand. God made a promise, and then he made a bunch of covenants in order to fulfill the promise. And this is what the whole Bible is about. The promise, as I cannot stop talk, seemingly to, to talk about it enough, Genesis 3.15, this is the basis of the covenant. God said I, there, uh, there will come a seed from Eve and a seed from, da, uh, from Satan, and uh, her seed will crush his head, and his seed will bite his heel. And this is the promise. I'm going to send a deliverer who's going to crush his head, who's going to be bruisable, who's going to rescue you. That's the promise. And then as the story goes, the covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David are all about that. He's, He's extending his plan to bring the Savior of the world, not just of Israel. So as you see the covenants develop in the Old Testament, you see that first it's about a guy, then it's about a household, then it's about a nation, then it's about a land, then it's about a king, then it's about the world. It's about eternity as well. That's what we're going to see here. This is the last covenant that God is going to make with Israel, the people of Israel, and it's going to include not just Israel, but the world. And at the heart and center of it is a house, an eternal house of rest and loving kindness. Now, who would like to live in an eternal house of rest and loving kindness? Show of hands. Thank you and amen. Okay, sign me up. Well, this deed has been established, the mortgage has been paid, and you, my friends, are now sitting in that house, not a strip mall in Linwood. It's another house, which we'll get to. In 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh is not canceling previous covenants. He never does. He's speaking at length to specify how he is moving toward the fulfillment of his promise of a Messiah. He's, he, this is what he always does, and this is why he's so tricky. I'm going to partially fulfill this covenant, but I'm going to leave it a little undone, but then I'm going to add promises to it. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So the thing that you're expecting by the time you get to a Messiah is earth-shattering. David has conquered the land. That's what he promised to Abraham. I will give you a land. Well, David's got the land. David is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. He is the king. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is on Zion. David, his, uh, not David, but his son will build a temple. Now, are, are all of those things, have all of those things that God promised to the people of Israel happened? Yes. But is it an eternal house yet? Is it an eternal temple? Is it an eternal king Are they eternally in the land? No. So you can see how the Lord works. It's very mysterious. He's fulfilled it, but he's not fulfilled it. And and then we come along, we're like, wait a minute now. What is this trickery? And and what it requires is faith. This is what covenants always require. It's faith. You're believing promises. uh, Abraham goes out and he looks up at the stars and he says, oh my gosh, this is an amazing thing you're going to do. And then he has one child. David is sitting here, right, and, and he, all he wants to do is build a, a, a temple to the Lord, and, and God says, no, not you, your son. Moses, right? Moses is on the hill, and he's looking at the promised land, and he's just about to get there, but no. This is always what's going on. There's this yearning always. God gives, feeds us. He provides for us. He gives us more than what we deserve, but there's always a bit of yearning in it. And what is it that we're yearning for? We're yearning for the very thing he's promising us, an eternal house, an eternal household of rest and loving kindness. Now, the covenant that he makes with David, his deed for a permanent household, shapes the life of Israel throughout the kingdom period, recorded in Kings and Chronicles, including both the discipline of exile... And the return from exile. All of that has to do with what is said in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic dynasty lasts for four centuries. That's pretty long for a dynasty. No king, however, resumed the throne after Israel's return to the land. But the prophets remember 2 Samuel 7. The prophets who are in exile, the prophets who are returning from exile, everybody remembers, hey, wait, you gave us the deed to a house. Where's the house? You said that there would be a king forever over that house. Where's the king? In Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this chapter shapes the history of Israel, and later, once they're disciplined in exile, it shapes their hopes. You said it. I've got it. It's I got the scroll where you said you were going to do these things. And the prophets come and say, Yes, he is going to do them. He is he has established this household. He will establish it for eternity. You will have rest. You will have his loving kindness. That's why this chapter is so important. David's booth will be repaired. Amos chapter nine verse eleven. In that day I will raise up the booth David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild as it as in the days of old. Now these promises, these prophetic promises, culminate obviously in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this household promise of eternity, of rest, of loving kindness. Jesus holds the title deed in his hand. If you could see him right now on his throne in heaven, he would have tucked away in, the, in his inner robe a scroll. And if you open that scroll, it would be the deed to a house for which he paid the mortgage. He said, I'm going ahead of you. There are rooms enough for all of you. I'm going to prepare a way for you. Come and follow me and you will find what? Rest. If you know me, you, ha- you know you will live forever. What's eternal life? Knowing me. What do you get when you come to me? Rest. He's got the deed. He took it with him. And if you want it, you have to follow him. Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. His house is eternal. His house is full of loving kindness. His house is a house of rest. And, and that's what we're going to be looking at here. So, as right, types and shadows, I want you to understand the key to understanding the types and shadows before we even start looking at the types and shadows. This, without a doubt, 100%, every syllable is about Jesus Christ. So now, we're all warmed up. Let us turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and read there verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. As a counselor, when people come to me, this is the thing I'd yearn to say to them. Hey, your heart's after God and God's after you, so go, go big or go home. Right? Love God and do what you want. This is what Augustine said. I love his response to David here. There's so much trust, so much faith in him as a man, as a man pursuing God, that essentially he's free to do whatever he wants. Because in following God is true freedom. Right? That, that, that's, that alone, we could, turn into the, the, we could just spend the rest of the time talking about that. The prophet of God recognizes the absolute freedom of David because he pursues the Lord so stringently, so faithfully, so humbly. Now, this section occurs sometime after Hiram has actually built a house. There's several things that are said. David has a house of cedar, okay? So it's after that. The ark is in its tent, so it's after that. But oddly enough, it, it says that he has give, been given rest from his enemies. Well, that actually doesn't happen till chapter 8 and chapter 10. So as I've said plenty of times, uh, the authors of scripture do not care about chronology like modern, modern uh, Westerners do, right? We want to know what happened in 1818, 1819, 18, 1820. But what they do is they take this story about the, the deed of the house and smack it right here in the middle of the story. Now that's very strange, don't you think? But think about what Jesus did, right? He came into the middle of the story just like this. He came, in, right, and, and, and everyone thought that the resurrection was coming at the end of time. Jesus takes the end of the story into the center of the story, and his resurrection is a sign of what's coming. I'm going to take the future, and I'm going to bring it into the present to give you hope, to give you surety of what's going to happen. And that what you see here is, is, is a flavor to the scriptures. It's this plan. The way that they're writing this is something that the other authors later will do. We're, uh, the authors, including God himself, right? who's writing the whole book. He's saying, this is what I like to do, right in the middle of all, right? you're building a house, you're bringing in the ark, you have all these wars, but in the center of it is a table I'm going to feed you from. And, and on that table is, is the word of God. The phrase used in verse 3, the Lord had given David rest, is pulled directly from his promise in Deuteronomy 12.10. Right? What 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 am I going to feed you? I'm going to feed you what I've done for you. What did I say I was going to do? What have I done? What what is set here on a table in the midst of our war, in the midst of our doing, in the midst right right in the center of our story is a table uh, upon which is what God said he would do and what he actually has done. David is troubled. And why is he troubled? He's troubled that he lived in a beautiful house made of cedar Made by foreigners, and his Lord God's throne is in a tent. He lives in a palace, and the King of the universe lives in a tent. Now, isn't that just like our God? <laughs> God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because where, would he, where else would he live, in a sense? Right? He's tabernacling there with and them. And that's what Jesus did. He came and tabernacled amongst us, John says. Of course, he's living in a tent. But this isn't enough. David David has more love and respect for him than this. How dare the Lord live in a tent while I live in a house of cedar? Like, who could argue with him? Nathan hears this, he's like, I'm with you, brother, right? Go big, go do it. Let's see, you? Could you imagine the temple David would have built? Now, Nathan is mentioned here first. He's become a huge character moving forward. He's, he plays a, large, a big role in David's life. He, he plays a big role in the life of Israel. He's a, the chronicler of everything we're reading. It says in, in 1 Chronicles 29 and 2 Chronicles 9, he's the guy writing all of this stuff down. He's, he's, he's recording what's happening. He is a man who God used, used to write the scriptures. He's a man that God uses as a mouthpiece. And so David goes where? To, to God's mouthpiece, and God's mouthpiece is looking at it, and from his wisdom, he says, yes, proceed, but that's not the last word, and what I like here is that God sees what they've planned and doesn't come and punish them. He doesn't come and rebuke them. How dare you think so high of yourselves as to build me a house? He comes, and he instructs them, right? So often, we make plans, and God has other plans, and just because he has other plans doesn't mean that he's angry with us. We ought to make plans. We ought to make his, uh, our plans ought to be as solidified as we could possibly make them, but realize that in the middle of the night, he may show up with a different plan. And how is David going to deal with that is a good question. It's part of what we're going to see. But if you turn to Second Samuel 7, 4 through 11, I'll just read that section. This is what the Lord has to say about their plan. This is what he has to say, starting in verse 4. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now the Lord is now taking the initiative. The very same night he shows up, before he lets them even go to the architect to start making blueprints, he doesn't even let them sleep on the idea. He shows up immediately because he doesn't want what they're planning. He takes the initiative. Yahweh raises the question of whether a house to dwell in is necessary or appropriate, right? There there is a sense where he is talking about the familiarity that David has with him. Is a house really an appropriate thing? Have I ever told anyone to build me a house? David, right? You think I need to live in a house? Do I need to live in a house? Now, this is a tension that his son understands completely. Right? There, there's a tension between the eminence of God and the transcendence of God that we always have to remember. He is a God who, who, who came down in, right, and lived in the womb of, of, a, of a virgin. He came and he, and he had swaddling clothes. He came and he lived. He, he rode on a donkey, for goodness sakes, the creator of the universe and yet he he lives in right unapproachable light this is the eminence and transcendence of god solomon understood it in 1 kings 8:27 this is what solomon said but will god indeed dwell on the earth behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that i have built paul says it god doesn't live in houses built by uh, by the hands of men he's god so so it's interesting that David's humility here is that he lives in a palace while God lives in a tent. And God, even though he's humble enough to have that idea, thumbs up, son, let me just remind you that can, I, can you even fit me into a house? Have I ever told anyone to build a house for me? You're going to presume to be the one to build me a house when the judges didn't build me a house, when Moses didn't build me a house? So long as the Lord had not called for a house, none should be built. That's what he's reminding him of. I didn't ask anyone to do this, but thank you. It was not for David to decide when the Lord's house should be built. That decision rested with Yahweh. Yahweh will tell everyone when he wants a house. The Lord directs David to keep his mind off of what he wants to accomplish for God and keep his mind on what God has accomplished for David. Oh, you want to do great things for me? Okay, no, sit down. Let me tell you what I have done for you. And I think this is extremely helpful for anyone who's walking with the Lord. We, ha- we get great ideas about the big things we're going to do for God. And sometimes what we need to do is sit down and remind ourselves of what he's done for us. Like, that's great. That's a great plan that you have there. Hold on. Let's just sit down and review some things going back 20 years. The, the Lord, when David was in the field, came and got him. I knew you even then, David. You were a nobody. Nobody cared who you were. Nobody cared what you were doing. You're out there talking to yourself and talking to sheep. I knew you even then, and I came and I got you, and I made you a prince over Israel. And this is key because the kings of Israel are called princes. Why? Because there is a king. So he's the king, and David is a prince because there's always someone higher than a prince. So it's, it's fascinating that somebody like David, who has shown a great deal of humility, there's still some humility to be reminded of. There's still a little further to go. David, the brilliant general in the eyes of his contemporaries, owed his entire success to, to God. God says, I did this. I delivered you from your enemies. I gave you rest. Playing on the word house... The tables are turned. The Lord promises, instead of receiving a house from David, to give a house to David. He always builds the house for his people and then calls them to build a house for us, or for him. This is what he does. He comes and he builds you a house before you can build him a house. This is what justification is. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are made of a uh, part of a house that we ourselves then help build. 1 Corinthians 3.9 For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, God's building. Ephesians 4.16 For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you want to do great things for God, first you have to receive the great things he's done for you. Do you want to build him a house? Well, first he must build your house. And this is um, difficult for us. right? Because we get so distracted by the great things we want to do for God. That what do we often forget? Our own households. I'm going to do great things for my my. For the company I work for, I'm going to do great things for the church. I'm going to do great things in the community. I'm going to transform the world. Well, how's your house doing? Right, build your house first. Build your house, right? Right, go there. That's what I'm going to do. That's what God interested. In. That's what God is interested in. It's what He provides us. He provides us with a house. He provides us with justification. He provides us, right, with a people to belong to, a household to belong to, sonship. And, and from that, that then, we join him in building his own house. If we do not get our own house right first, if he isn't building our house, it does not matter what we're going to attempt to do for him. What, what I find fascinating is if we want to build his house, we let him build ours. We get out of his way and, and we do what he tells us to do the way he tells us to do it, and that has to do with sexuality, that has to do with marriage, that has to do with buying houses, selling houses, what jobs we have. We Our focus has got to be on what he's doing in our house. That is the path to doing great things for him. Now, there are a number of other little echoey details here that i find fascinating that help us to understand this household that we've inherited in jesus christ yahweh promised to give abram a great name remember this in genesis chapter 12 verse 2 right they were building a tower of babel to make their great name great and and god comes to abraham and says listen i'm going to make your name great and that's what he says to david i'm going to make your name great well god i thought i was going to go out and make your name great right i've been studying apologetics i've been studying christian theology and i'm going to go out and make a great name for you and god said i got my name is covered okay, don't worry about me i'm going to make your name great and and what what's funny about this is even david why do we even care who david is would we even remember him if the lord jesus had never come right can you name an assyrian king can you name an Egyptian king that was really great from the 6th century B.C.? Anybody? Uh, here's a question. How many American presidents can you name, right? let alone kings from the ancient world? And yet, who doesn't know about David? The only reason David is great is his association with Jesus. That's it. We tend to think that it's, he's great all by himself. It's not. We only remember him because he has a greater son. right? And I, I love this. Um, I've thought many times, I, I, I read biographies of great men, and they mention the dad somewhere in the first chapter or two, and I would love to be one of those dads. This sort of footnote. Well, the great man, fill in the blank of any of my sons, came from this dude's house. Right? No, and I would just like to have a name associated with a great man that comes from me. And I, and I love David's humility here. David doesn't balk at this. So, like, oh, you're going to make my name great. I wonder how you're going to do that. Well, it's going to take a long time, and it's going to have to do with this carpenter that's going to be born. And if David had understood as as deeply as we understand, he would have been like, "That's good stuff. Yes, that's a story. That's a story I want to be associated with." But what's going on here is the fact that the promises that he made to Abraham are now being are, are given to David. David is the fulfillment. He is the way that God is going to bring about the promises he made to Abraham. That's why he's using this language. Through the prophetic announcements of this chapter, David is made the founder of the only royal family the Lord will ever sanction in perpetuity. This is it, right? He doesn't care who the czar of Russia is. He doesn't care who the prime minister of, of England is in the same way. There is no other throne in the world that God has promised in perpetuity other than David's. So you know, great kings come, and great kings go, and great dynasties come, and great dynasties go, right? Who are the Habsburgs? Anybody? <laughs> Anyone remember the Habsburgs? No? The Plantagenets? How about them? James I? Anyway, okay. So it's, it's a bunch of boring stuff, and who cares? This is the throne. This is it. All other, th- right? You better kiss the sun, or you're going to be crushed. This is the only throne that matters. This is the only dynasty that matters, all others are subservient to this one. He doesn't give a fig about the others compared to this one. And so you either get in line with it or get out of the way. Right? In 300 years, is anyone going to remember the governors of Washington? No. Well, but you know how you know how a governor of Washington would be known is kissing the sun, right? And being associated with Jesus like David is. That's the only way any of us are ever going to have a great name, it's the only dynasty that matters. And, and so if you want your heritage to belong to this or someone else's, if you want a great name, it's being attached to Christ is the only way to get it. Now, he talks a little bit here in, in very covenantal language, reminiscent of Deuteronomy, and the fact that he lays out the fact that he will discipline his son, but also restore his son. He says, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Well, that's an echo uh, from Leviticus where he promises, if you get out of line, I will send the Assyrians to punish you. If you get out of line, the Philistine. right? And what have we seen in the life of Saul? Saul gets out of hand, and you've got all these people coming to discipline him. But did, did the Lord's yesed rest on Saul? No, actually, it didn't. But what he's telling David is, listen, there will be a time where I use the rod of men to punish you to discipline you, to train you, to drive from your heart foolishness. But my loving kindness will not depart from you. And and that's the hope of Israel later on. What happens to the kings? Well, they decline and they go into exile. The house falls. And in the book of Lamentations, we read that this is actually fulfilled. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's promising, if you get out of line, I will discipline you. But I'm not going to just come and burn you to the ground. I'm not going to just come and go nuclear on you. I'm going to come and I'm going to chastise you and then show you loving kindness. That's the plan. And that's what he does to Israel. This is the life of Israel. Because later in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, this is in the same chapter of the same book. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I felt the rod of your wrath, and yet your mercy never ends. And this is how you, if you are confident in your position in God's household, you can see discipline for what it is. And you kiss the hand that's giving you the stroke. You submit to it, you learn from it, opposed to, right? Oh, well, now the love of God has departed from my household for eternity. And any kind of discomfort comes, any kind of discipline comes. The wrath of the nations, are you kidding me? The wrath of the nations come now, and what do we want? We want Biden to send airplanes, send tanks, right? This isn't chastisement for anybody. What's going on in Ukraine, I'm going to use it as an example because it could happen to us any day now because the Russians are slobbering all over Alaska. Ukraine is being punished. It's being disciplined. Now, will God return to them if they return to him? Will his loving kindness come to those he disciplines, his children? Yes. And we've got to mature in this. We've got to understand how these two things work together, judgment and mercy. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, here are a whole bunch of threads come together in Hebrews. Why was Jesus chastised? Why was he disciplined? Because he was a naughty boy or because you were? And did he reject it or did he learn from it? Did he embrace it or did he kick against the goats? And, was, and why? He's a high priest in order. he understands his heritage. He understands that he's a deed in his hand. And that though he may be disciplined, there's a reason. And he will see the loving kindness of God. And for that joy set before him, he will not only endure it, but learn from it. A negative becomes a positive. And in his household, that's how it's supposed to work. He studied Second Samuel chapter 7. He understands how it works. This is how you know you're a true son of God. When the discipline comes followed by the loving kindness, because he's trying to teach you something. Now, what also is going on here is what we call federal headship. What happens to the king affects everyone, right? As, as the um, foundation of the house, so goes the house. As the head goes, so goes the body. As the father goes, so goes the household. Several examples of this prep us for exactly what, how this works. According to 1 Kings chapter 11, Yahweh was angry with Solomon because he had gone after other gods. And as a result, what happened? He said, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Now, does that affect everyone in the kingdom? When a king, kingdom is ripped away, is the only person that's affected the king? Now, did God judge all of Israel because of the disobedience of one man? That's covenant headship. That's federal headship. The division of the nation clearly affected the whole people, but the cause was Solomon. Later, after the event of Naboth's vineyard, Ahab put on a sackcloth and repented despondently. When Yahweh saw Ahab's humility, he decided not to bring the evil in his days. He said, okay, I'm not going to bring this evil upon you. Look at how humble you are. I'm going to bring it on your kids. (laughs) It'll, It'll come in their day. And so all these people... Oh, the evil that was going to be ours is no longer ours. Why? Because one man humbled himself. The northern kingdom was overthrown by Assyria because the people who had whored after the idols, but Judah, ruled by a Davidic son of God, suffered exile because of the sins of Manasseh. One man sins and the whole nation goes into exile. In several passages in 1st and 2nd Kings moreover the sickness of the king or the king's son serves as a symbol for the sickness of the kingdom. And this is what we read about the story of humanity in Romans chapter 5 verse 18 and 19. Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is how God has made the world. You, right? What happens to a church when the minister is walking in unrepentant sin? What happens to a family? What happens to a business? This is the reality in which we live. Do you, do you want to deliver your family from the judgment of God? Dads, fathers, husbands, Repent of your sins. Put on sackcloth and ashes. Job goes, and what did Job do? Job offered a sacrifice to God, including those sins that his kids may not even have understood were sins. And, and that's what we learn in this section. This is federal headship. This is leadership. I will discipline you, but my loving kindness will, fi- will come to you. And it's not just about you. It's about a whole people group. It's a, he doesn't just save individuals. He saves peoples. He doesn't just save a man. He, he creates a household and saves a household. It's, it's nations, households, businesses, states, counties, cities. These things matter. And, and we often try to run to the, uh, the wrong kind of solution to the ills of the, of the state. I've used the example before. Do you know what you're supposed to do according to the scripture when you have an, a, a, a homicide that nobody can solve? The elders of the city are supposed to repent to God. And I did the math where there's 27 un, uh, cold cases in Everett alone, I think, going back 100 years. And has anyone ever heard anyone repent of that? No, but we are darn sure worried about what party this Snohomish County sheriff is a member of. Now, does that not matter? No. But when, when we get into reform, when we get into cleaning up what's wrong with society, we often have the wrong cure, primary in our minds. And a household... Of rest, a household of loving kindness understands that what you you do and don't do affect the people in your household. Achan, what happened with him? He stole, and did it affect the entire household of Israel? Now, if you are at home and you're walking in unrepentant sin, repentant sin, is it affecting what goes on with the rest of us? It does. Now. The immediate application to a lot of this is Solomon. Solomon is is not even going to go into the grave (laughs) with his household intact. The kingdom is going to be ripped in half before Solomon is even dead. So the the authors of scripture understood, well, you know, they, they clearly were not talking about Solomon completely here. There are some things where they're talking about Solomon and some things where they're clearly not talking about Solomon, they're talking about somebody else. In Acts chapter 11... Verses 31 to 38, the throne of Solomon's kingdom is is not permanently established. It's taken away from him, if you read ahead in the story. And so who is this person? Who is this person who's going to be established forever? It's not Solomon. The authors of the New Testament take their cue directly from Jesus. This, This person who restores the household, this person who receives the discipline of the Lord, this person who then receives the loving kindness of the Lord, this person who receives this deed is Jesus. Jesus says of himself, he claimed that he would build a temple that would last forever. He does it in Matthew and Mark and John. He says, I will possess an eternal throne, Matthew 19, verse 28. He claimed to possess an imperishable kingdom in Luke 22 and John 18. Jesus looked back at this chapter. Jesus looked back at the promises. Jesus looked back at what they were waiting to be fulfilled. And he said, this is me that they're talking about. So this is helpful to us because later on in the prophets, they're very confused. Well, what happened to your promises to David? What happened to establishing his household forever? Who's hidden the deed? Who came into Israel and stole the deed that God gave us to an eternal house of loving kindness and rest? Where did it go? Now, what's interesting here is how it closes. It closes, right? The God is standing outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end. And what he wants to do is give Israel hope. He wants this to be recorded by Nathan. He wants David to understand that I'm not just talking to you and your children. I am talking to your people. I want you to be firmly established in in, in exactly what you're receiving in this deed. And so verses 12 through 17, this is what he says. Uh... men and with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David Now how now that we've talked about this for a little while did you hear All of the things that that included about Jesus. And they got and They're like, okay, well, certainly calling him a son is metaphorical, correct? He's going to come from David's body. Okay, so we're looking for a man, not a god. So you can see how the whole thing is set up. And you can see how the tension in the text. Because if if the Messiah is going to come, he's going to have to somehow physically descend from David. If the Messiah is going to come, um, he's going to have to be raised up. And then Jesus, here he is with the uh, divine conception, comes from someone who descends from David, is a man that you can kill, but is also God that you cannot. So he comes out of the ground, and God actually raises him up, just like he promised he would. And you can see, again, why the prophets are so confused. But if you listen to the words, what does he say? I will do this, and it will last forever. I will do this, and I will not turn away from it. I, I will not take my loving kindness from you. No matter what you see with your eyes, the loving kindness will not depart. No matter what you see with your eyes, the house will stand. Here is the deed. And so when we look around, do we feel like he's just departed? Do you look around and you think, what happened to the household of America? What happened to the household of Washington, for goodness sakes? We don't even have to go that far. What happened to Snohomish County? You look around your own household, you think, what happened? What happened? Somebody get my grandparents on the phone and tell me What happened? And, and you see, this house can't stand. What house can stand? And, and what he wants us to see is well beyond our circumstances. He wants us to know there is a deed. And that deed is eternal. And that deed is a promise of a, a loving, kind household full of rest. And, and he wants it to shape the year. Do you yearn for it? If you go back and you read the prophets, that's why I want you to think of this story. And I want you to go back and read the prophets. Where they're like, please, please, get us out of this mess. Restore to us what you promised to David, please. And, and, and what does it have to do with? Does it have to do with, and this is where it gets really fun, rest or comfort? What's the difference between those two? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and in need of rest, because my yoke is light. Now, I've read the end of the Gospels, and I'm not really sure what he means. What do you mean your yoke is light? Certainly, he must mean something very different than what I typically think of as comfort and rest. Loving kindness what is loving kindness it's faithfulness to us when we do not deserve it now when you look at what's going on in your life do you say look at all this you said look at all this loving kindness of God look at all this goodness and grace that I don't deserve or do you look around and say where's all that stuff I do we can mock millennials all day long but where did they learn it from where do they learn it from I'm looking down the generations here, right? Our our grandparents and great-grandparents came back from World War II. Everybody had a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of opportunity, and and we created this false gospel about white picket fences in in the suburbs and, and never, ever, 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 ever being without anything that immediately that might give us comfort. Is that the household that he promised us? What I find is that I myself and most of us don't even know what it is we're actually yearning for. Because I read this and I think, you know, yeah, I do want rest. You know what I do want is loving kindness. You know what I really would like is a household I could just go to and be at ease, be at rest, be comfortable, be loved, be accepted. And and what that doesn't look like is a house in Everett. I mean, it just doesn't look like that, with a refrigerator and a freezer, right? You know, because <laughs> so, I'm in the house buying process, and you go, you go with your tape measure, and you have all these wily, you, you know and it, it, what happens after months of that? I will take anything that they would sell me at this point. <laughs> Even if it's a land where I can park a, a pop-up tent, I'll do it. And, and what, ha- what has to happen to us is all of those, right, all, the measuring tape, we've got to put it away. David had a plan to build a house for God, and God had other plans. And David receives this. God says, no, don't do it. Remember what I have already done for you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to do a bunch of other things that you weren't even anticipating. Think about what the story is saying. No, you're not going to do something for me. I've done a great deal for you, and I'm going to do more now. David, what? David, who, who am I that you're? David doesn't say, "Well, I had a great plan. You should have seen these blueprints. I, I, I drew it on a napkin. This Tim gonna be killer, right? Forget Artemis. Look at this thing I was gonna build, you." David doesn't flee. He doesn't get upset. He he goes before the Ark of the Lord, and he prays a prayer of amen. the The whole rest of the it's one long prayer where he simply says. Amen. Amen. You know what I want? You know, I didn't even know I wanted this. I I thought I wanted to build you something, but then you come along and you tell me you're going to build me something. And you know what? That actually sounds a lot better. A house of loving kindness and rest that lasts forever? Actually, yes. That sounds better than trying to build a palace for you out of cedar. I don't even know how hard cedar is to work with. But one sounds easier. Receiving is actually easier than giving, isn't it? Now, I've run out of time to read the prayer, but read it. You should read it because David goes in. He goes into the ark. I thought you weren't allowed to do that. He sits, which isn't what priests actually do. It says in Hebrews, they're always standing because they're always working. This is a picture of the gospel. He he gets on his knees and he says, if there's another way to do what you want me to do, teach it to me. Is there another way? I want to build your house. Let me build your house. And God says to his son, Jesus, what? I have a way that you're going to build. I'm going to build a house for you. And and come. Come this way. You're going to feel discipline. You're going to feel loving kindness. And in the end, you're going to get an eternal house of rest. David is like that. He hears what the Lord says, and he goes, and he sits. He sits at the right hand of God. And he says, amen. You know what's better than my plans? Your plans. (laughs) And, And why has this all happened? Why has it all happened? If you go back to the previous chapter, what was going on? David is out there acting like a fool in front of the ark of God. He's out there worshiping. He's out there humiliating himself and and, and humiliating himself in front of everybody and not caring who, who is watching. And God says, listen, my children do not remain in that position. I then exalt them to my right hand. If you humble yourself, I will exalt you. You take chapter 6, and you take chapter 7, and if you act like David, you're going to get an eternal house of rest and loving kindness. Now, is that what was David was aiming at? Did David think, oh, I have this plan to get something from God? No. He loves God, and he goes out and he sells out everything he's got for God, and God says, no, don't stay in that humble position. Come here to my right hand. That's what's going on here. It's not works righteousness. David's absolute adoration and love for God made him not think of what he looked like in front of anyone else, and selling out like that, he receives everything. Everything. Everything he didn't even know he wanted. Who who can deal with this kind of exaltation? I'm just going to go in here and sit at your feet, God, and say amen James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's what we're reading here. Romans 8 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You mean there's more? You mean there's more? You're gonna take all my sin, you're gonna take all my discipline for me and give me all your loving kindness and an eternal house of rest and loving kindness and and that's just the start and david that's what is happening here david hears it's not just that i've done all of these things up to this point now what i'm going to do is blow your mind and he's like take me to the ark and let me pray and is that how we respond no, we don't, no, we want white picket fences. We want 1,800 square foot houses with four bedrooms and two baths, right? Somewhere in the Lowell neighborhood. <laughs> Am I, is it a little too on the nose? We think, you know, we're going to build ministries, we're going to build churches, we're going to build these things for God. And God says, no, sit down, sit, sit. Let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And, and just like Job in, in the la- latter chapters, where God doesn't answer any of his questions, he simply reveals himself, and Job says, amen, that's what's happening here. This is always a story. Shh, shh. I'm glad you have a plan, thank you. Let me tell you mine. There is a deed. The mortgage has been paid. And you are all invited. You're all told, come, come. Well, um, I don't know, I've sinned. Don't worry about it, I took care of it. Well, I have this other plan. Don't worry about that plan, I have a better plan. This is the response we're getting. There is a deed uh, to an eternal house of rest and loving kindness. And he went ahead of us to make room for us. And, and the beautiful thing is we're not David. We're not David in, in the calendar where it says B.C. We're in, in the part of the calendar where it says A.D. The house is established. The house is paid for. You already are a part of it. John chapter 14, verses 22 to 23. Judas, not Iscariot. I always love when they have to point that out. Not the dirtbag Judas. The other Judas said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That home of loving kindness, that home of rest has already come and it dwells upon each of you. Matthew 11:28 through30, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. Now, he's not saying that you don't have to get up and go to work tomorrow. He's not saying that you don't have to get up and make pancakes for the kids tomorrow. He's not saying that you don't have to go to the gas station. He's saying that you're trying to find loving kindness. You're trying to find rest. You're trying to find a household to belong to. All of this striving that you're doing, all of this yearning that you're doing, I have taken care of it. Come, come, and I'll give you all these things. And Augustine said, until we, "Until we find our rest in Him, we will find none. And, until we are satisfied in Him, we will find no satisfaction." John seventeen three and his and this, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The house has come, the deed is paid. The rest and the loving kindness are firmly established. Whatever your plan was, come and listen to what the Lord has already done for you and listen to what he will do. And then sit at rest and praise him. Say amen in song and in prayer and in in, in the works of your life. Say amen. That's what we're called to. That's the story that we're participating in. Second Samuel chapter 7, that's what it's about. Here's the deed. Go. Go and follow him. He's gone ahead of you. The house is ready. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your son. We thank you for all of your sons, Nathan and David. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have indeed paid the mortgage, that you have... Um, come to us and have made your home with us you have delivered unto us a de- uh, for a house of eternal rest and loving kindness we know lord that in you we do not need to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear or what we're going to do tomorrow the grace that you have uh, so overwhelmingly shown us lord is abundant it's a feast And here in the midst of our wars, here in the midst of our striving, I pray, Lord, that we would be at rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would feel his loving kindness, that we would give him a hearty amen, not just in word, but in deed, and amen.